with that being said, let us turn to First uh, John. And really, the main thing that John is dealing with is this question that I think all of us have at some point in our journey. Um, after we've come to Christ, we, we, we still wrestle with, how do I know that I know that I know that I know him? <laughs> how can I be assured of that? How can I be assured of the fact that I belong to him? And I think uh, the, the theme verse, maybe for the whole letter, is verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 2. Where John says, all right, whoever claims to be in him must, and I'll say this literally how it reads in the original language, must walk as Jesus walked. And Jesus came to the world to show us how to walk. He didn't just come to die a death, but he came to this world to live a life. His walk was distinctive. The path that he walked was specific, and he calls us to walk his walk and to walk the path he blazed. In fact, that whole, when he says, come follow me, it literally means come walk after me, walk like me, walk my path. That's not just a disciple, that's a Christian. And so what John wants to do then in in this letter is he wants to highlight two key features of Jesus' walk. First is the unique way in which Jesus related to the world. Boy, was it unique. And what John told us in in chapter 2, particularly verses uh, 15, 16, and 17, that like Jesus, we are not to love the world or the things of the world and that gets confusing because then John 3.16 says, but God so loved the world. And what we learned then is that this word world can have different meanings. And I think it's so easy for us to think world means the physical or the material world. But what we learned is that John is writing this letter to Greeks, to Westerners, namely Gnostics, who believed that the physical material world is evil or at least inferior, whether it be our bodies, food, sport, politics, material possessions, the arts, the environment, that all of this is inferior to a spiritual world. And so therefore, Gnosticism is this religion of escape. I must escape the material for the spiritual, whatever that is. And so Gnostics are, are, are mixing this dualism with Christianity. And we're still doing it in the West today. And, but this is one of the reasons why John writes the letter. It's to correct this. That's why we must be careful to not read dualism into this word world. When he says, do not love the world. Because God's word does not see the world in this dualistic way. It doesn't see the material world as bad and the spiritual world is good. The story of the Bible is not of a God who escapes this bad material universe, but instead it's a God who's continuously moving towards it, culminating in him taking on flesh 
think about that. The God of the universe became just a guy. Or as Joan Osborne sung, just a slob like one of us. You know, his, his, his boots are on the ground. And then you read the Gospels and you see that he's, he's, he's always moving into the mess. He's not trying to escape it because he wants to redeem the mess. And he does this not as some pretentious, hyper-spiritual weirdo. He's a guy. A real man. God in the flesh. I mean, read the Gospels and just take note how often... It's surrounded around Jesus eating a meal, drinking, hanging out with sinners. What Jesus is, is he is a man fully in the world, fully for the world, but not of the world. And we are called to walk as Jesus walked. And this is the unique way in which we are to relate to the world. We are fully in it. Fully for it, yet not of it. That's an equation that's potent. Okay, today we're going to look at the unique way in which Jesus loved, which is what John's saying, the unique or next mark of a real deal Christ follower. So, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? The Bible's always asking why. Not just what, but why. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. Boy, who does that sound like? Jesus. And you know that no murderer or One who hates a brother or sister has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John says, let's get real practical here. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not just love with words or speech, or pity, but with actions and in truth. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Because if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him Everything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. 
And this is his command, to trust in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave to us. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. So really, to sum these verses up, in terms of how John is answering the question of how do we know that we know that we know that we belong to him, he says, love. Love is the proof. And as they say, the proof is in the pudding. The proof that we are in him is that we love. In fact, uh, look at verse 11. He said, this is the message you heard from the beginning. This is what we've heard from the beginning. And what does he mean by the beginning? Uh, Not just the beginning of of time, but the beginning of God's word. This goes all the way back to the beginning of God's word. In fact, he then tells one of the word's first stories about Cain and Abel. That's not just a killing that takes place, but that's brother killing brother. And John asks, why? Well, if you remember the story, both of them uh, are offering their worship to God. And already at the beginning of the Bible, you have different worship styles. And, And here in this story, I think we see the sin beneath the sin. Because Cain, we see, is worshiping God, not for God's sake, but for his sake. God, do you like me? God, is my worship better than my brother Abel's? And all of a sudden, this intense jealousy arises in his heart. And I want us to see right now that, I mean, can you see now how hideous sin can can lie underneath even something like worship? I mean, hideous sin can can lie underneath some of our best acts, whether it be prayer or ministry or parenting or, or anything that might look so good to the world, preaching sermons. Some of the most hideous sin can, can, can lie under that kind of stuff. Because sin isn't just breaking the rules. Sin is making life about me instead of God. And we can do this with even the best things. But now I'm on a rabbit trail, which I'll get off. But go back to chapter 2, because I skipped over some verses there that are also in line with this theme that we're on today. Look at verse 6. Whoever claims to be in him must walk as Jesus walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. I'm writing you also a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Man, John is just in your face. And I think he's almost doing it just in this monotone, loving voice kind of way. And he's just kind of silently punching, punching, punching. Um... But what he says in, this, in these verses is love is the old command. I mean, it is. Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is, is your only God. Love him with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the old commandment. 
Jesus said this is the first and great, greatest commandment. Almost every Jew living during Jesus' day would say that's the first and greatest commandment. The command to love. In fact, then when you look at the first half of chapter 3, which we skipped over, it's all about sin and the practice of lawlessness. Lawlessness, as we think of it, is breaking the Constitution and, and breaking the laws of the United States. But that's not what John has in mind. When John's talking about law here, he's talking about God's law. He's talking about Torah. Lawlessness is Torahlessness. Torah is summed up in one word. What? Love. So lawlessness or Torahlessness is lovelessness. That is the old command. It is to love. But where the old command, as John says, has been made new been made new because it's now seen and understood in light of Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly walks out the Torah, Jesus shows it what it really means to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now before we flush this out further, I want us to see right now how high the stakes are about what we're talking about. This is not just proof to ourselves that we're in. That we really belong to him. It's also the proof of God to the world. I mean, look at 3 verse 17 where it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Again, John isn't just citing a new commandment there. This is Deuteronomy 15. This is at the heart of Torah. And see, God had a bigger purpose in mind with these commands than just to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. It went beyond the poor, the widow, and the stranger. Because when you read Deuteronomy 4, God says, I want you to keep my commands and to love as I tell you to love for the sake of the world. This is how you're going to show the world what I'm like, that I am God, and how great I am. This is why God says you're to be a nation of priests. Priests are the people who took care of the poor. They're the ones who took care of those in need. And while Israel had a tribe that was devoted to this priestly role, they were all called to be priests. They were all called to care for those in need. Why? Deuteronomy 4, for the sake of the nations. That they may know God. And this is everywhere. Isaiah 58, verse 10. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. It's all over the New Testament. Peter picks up on this. He says, walk such good lives among the pagans. Walk this thing out among pagans. Not up there in the hills in your little tribe isolated from the world. Walk it out among the pagans that they may accuse you of doing wrong, but they may see your good deeds 
and worship God on the day he visits us. This goes back to Jesus. Jesus also from saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Or John 15, because 1 John really is the cliff notes or the study guide to John's gospel. But in John 15, the words of Jesus, a new command I give you, love one another. That's not the new part. The new part is love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Stakes are high. What is love? What does it mean to love? What should be the next question? How did Jesus love? C.S. Lewis talks about there being two forms of love, two kinds of love. He says there is give love and there is need love. Need love, he says, is I love something because of what it can do for me. I love someone because of how that person can meet my needs. He says need love starts from this state of emptiness. Emptiness. I love things. I love people to fill that need, to fill the emptiness. Gift love, on the other hand, can only happen from the state of being full. It's when I love someone for their sake, not my sake. It's when I love someone, not for what I can get from that person, but what I can give to that person. See, these are two very different loves. And see, God's love is never need-based. It's always gift-based. He doesn't love us because in some way he needs us. God loves us from this perfect state of fullness. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave it all. You see, this is the kind of love that we as Christians have the potential of possessing because we're no different than the rest of the world. We are just as needy. We are just as desperate as the rest of the world. But, but as Christians, what we know is something the world doesn't know. We know God's perfect love. So that we don't have to look towards our spouses or to a job or to a sport. We don't have to look to our kids or our friends to fill that emptiness in our hearts. We look to God and his perfect love. It assuages us completely and fills us. I mean, think about all the things that people can turn today. I'll give you two, th- two, two extremes. Let's start with an affair. An affair can happen to any single one of us, can't it? 
how many people turn to an affair and, and ask yourself, why do they turn to an affair? To get love. To prove that they're lovable. They come empty. The affair's going to fill me. Let me give you another extreme. On the other end. Ministry. On paper, what looks better? An affair? Ministry. I'm telling you, underneath both can be the same hideous sin. I can look to an affair, or I can look to ministry to fill the emptiness of my needy heart. People pleasing. I mean, God has healed me of this ugly disease or is in the process of healing me. I mean, people-pleasing looks so good to everyone else. I'm telling you, at the core of people-pleasing is a narcissistic, selfish person. I know. God's healing me of that. I don't care what it is. If we look to anything other than God to meet our needs, to fill the emptiness, we will always be let down. We'll always be in this state of emptiness. But here's what a Christian has. We have the opportunity to turn to God and let, us, let him fill us with his perfect love. So that we can now love like Christ, not from a state of emptiness, but a state of fullness. Look at the verse first of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his son and his daughter, and that is what we are. <laughs> oh. or look at verse 16. You want to know what love is? John lays it out pretty black and white. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He laid it down and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. That's how Shema gets walked out. I'm going to tell you, when you, when you really see how, how Jesus loved it so flies in the face of our modern understanding of love because we understand love, I think, first of all, to be acceptance. It's accepting everyone and everything as okay. And while that feels loving, at the end of the day, that is just selfish and cowardly and it just lets you off the hook. It lets other people off the hook. How many times is Jesus kind of raising the bar? He doesn't just accept anything and everything. Why not? Because he loves. When you really love someone, you're not going to just make that about acceptance. Our culture has also reduced love to a feeling. 
I mean, think about even how we talk about love. We, we, we don't even say, I love that person. We say, I'm in love. I mean, we, 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 we've reduced it to this state of euphoria, um, to, to a noun, when love is supposed to be a verb. I mean, how many times in, in, in my ministry or just my life, I've heard people say, well, I'm leaving my spouse because I'm no longer in love with them. You know what I say inside? Can't say it. <laughs> no, 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 no. And by the way, that's what Derek taught me too. It's like, Derek, sometimes just don't say it. <laughs> that's why we love each other so much. Biblical love isn't a noun, it's a verb. Biblical love, you want a definition? It's an act of sacrifice. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> That's not a feeling. Love is sacrificing our, lo- our life for the sake of another. Okay, now Jesus even pushes the envelope further because not only does he redefine love in terms of what love really is, but he also uh, redefines who we are to extend this love to. I mean, you go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and and you realize when, when Jesus says things like this, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because what does your father in heaven do? He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends mine kaim, rain, on the righteous and the unrighteous. It goes beyond our friends and the people we like. It goes to people we don't like. To our enemies. In fact, that's the whole purpose of the text last week of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that we are to love, that we are to act sacrificially on behalf of Samaritans, of people we don't love. In fact, I think it's a greater sacrifice actually to love people that we don't like than to love people that we do like. You could argue it's a greater act of love. Look at how Jesus walked this out. He had a backstabber in his own group. Someone who was going to betray him. What did he do? He washed his feet. I mean, example after example, the one that's the one that just grabs me the most is there he is hanging on the cross. And from an earthly perspective, his enemies are standing right there before him. They're mocking him. They are ridiculing him. And he looks up and he prays one of the most powerful prayers. He says, Father, Forgive these guys. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And John isn't going to just leave this in the world of ideas. I mean, this is boots on the ground kind of stuff. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. This isn't just about saying I love you, but do it with your life. 
There's a new term today. I think it's a good one. It's called a slacktivist. <laughs> yeah. A slacktivist is someone who talks about caring for the poor, talks about caring for the needy, talks about all these great world problems that we need to be concerned about, but at the end of the day, they're just slackers and do nothing about it. John isn't leaving any room for us being slacktivists. Now listen, how we care about the poor is important. I mean, that's why I had this guy come in last week, because we can't just thoughtlessly throw our hearts at this. Um, we, we need to think about this, because there are actually ways that we think we're helping uh, the poor and those in need, when in reality, we're just hurting them in the long run. But right now, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the importance that it's the mark that we belong to him. This is where we need to read church history. Because historians are puzzled at how Christianity went from this small little ragtag movement to sweeping through the Roman Empire so that by the time you get to the 4th century AD, the vast majority of the empire is Christian. And historians are left just scratching their head asking, like, now how did this happen? I remember uh, about 10 years ago taking a trip to Turkey to do the seven churches of Revelation. And we were at Ephesus, and our Turkish guide, um, in this strong Turkish accent, took us to this, to this place outside the city. And she said this, by the way, and she was, she's a Muslim, she's not a Christian, but she said this, by the way, is, is the city's dump. And she said because abandonment was such a big deal in the Roman Empire where parents, instead of aborting their kids, would just take their kids and and they would take them to the dumps. Just leave them there. And she said two groups of people came to the dumps. She said slave traders came there, of course, because they wanted to take these infants in and raise them up uh, to traffic them. She said also the Christians came to these dumps to listen for these cries so they could take these kids into their home and raise them up as their children. Rodney Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about all these things, and he talks about all these plagues and earthquakes that also would would, would sweep through the empire. In fact, in one place he says, not a house in the Roman Empire was not affected uh, by these plagues. And he said what the pagans did is when these plagues and earthquakes came, they just abandoned ship. They got out of Dodge as quickly as they could. But not the Christians. The Christians stayed there. In fact, Rodney Stark says many of them lost their lives to save life. Because he writes, he says, when the plagues passed and and the sick got better, they looked at these Christians And said, why did you do this? You certainly didn't do it for the money. You certainly didn't do it to profit. You didn't do it for your own safety. And the Christians would just say, we did it for you. See, this is how Christianity won the the minds and the hearts of the Roman Empire. That's why those of you who are in college today, or, or even in high school, and, and you listen to your, your, your professors who, who say Christianity is nothing more than the Crusades and the Inquisition and slavery. And let me also add the religious right. I'm going to tell you something. They're wrong. 
The storyline of Christianity is about thousands in every single generation without any fanfare who lived for Christ. They did. It's going on today. Malcolm Muggeridge, probably one of the greatest British minds of the, of the 20th century, spent most of his life as an agnostic. Until he did what? Until he visited the slums of Calcutta, India, and met a person called Mother Teresa. He later wrote, he said, my life was changed at that moment. And he said, I realized that the great halls of modern agnostic academia could never produce such a selfless heart, a selfless life. Only Christ can produce this kind of love. And see, this is how we know that we know him. Look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now, where do we get the power and the motivation for this? You know what I could do right now? I have to admit, I could be really good at this. <laughs> I could make all of us feel really guilty. In fact, some of you are feeling guilty. Some of the better things in life that I've done have been motivated by guilt. The problem with this is that guilt works in the short term, but in the long term, guilt is, is it, it, it's a terrible motivator because in the end, being motivated by guilt will at best just make you and I religious. Where it all becomes all about us. That's why I look at verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Why is this here? (laughs) I mean, it doesn't fit here. But it does. Because it's inevitable that when you go down this path of, of moving into chaos and loving people who are in need, you're going to find that your heart becomes really good at condemning. First, you're going to condemn others. You're going to say things like, okay, why aren't other Christians doing this? Why aren't other Christians giving more? Why aren't other Christians living where I live? And what you find is this cynicism accompanied by this self-righteousness starting to form in your heart. Those are, those, are, those are telltale signs of religion. And I'm not talking about religion here as something good. Religious people are the most critical people in the world. But see, then what happens if you're honest and humble enough, you're going to begin to condemn your own heart because what happens is you always feel like you could do more. And guess what? You and I should be doing more. How many of you have seen the movie uh, Schindler's List? I'm not endorsing it because there are scenes that you have to absolutely stop and just close your eyes and fast forward through. Um, that's a powerful movie. 
If you don't know Schindler's List, um, Schindler's List is about a businessman, Arthur Schindler, who during World War II capitalized on buying Jews from the Germans, from the concentration camps, as very cheap labor. Now, at first, Arthur Schindler Schindler just did this for profit. But as the movie goes on, you see his heart beginning to change. Because he sees the incredible suffering that the Jews have to endure. So what he ends up doing is he just starts buying as many of these Jews as he can to save them. And then the movie moves along where the allies uh, liberate the camps. And towards the end of the movie, all these... Jewish people have been liberated. They come around Arthur Schindler and they just thank him. And they thank him. But Arthur Schindler isn't like doing this. He begins to weep. He falls apart. He literally falls to the ground sobbing. Because what he's doing in that moment is he's thinking to himself, I could have done more. And then it, it shows him looking at his Mercedes that's right there. And then, and then he even starts looking at the clothes and the suit he's in. He even pulls a pen out of his pocket. And he's, just, he's weeping with this whole idea that I could have done more. Because every possession he owns represents money he could have spent on saving lives. His heart is condemning him. He could have done more. This is what we do. Our hearts condemn us. We can do a lot more. Do I really need this much house? Do I really need to drive around in in this much car? Did I really need to go on on that vacation? Our, our, Our hearts condemn us. And see, John knows all of this, and he's pastoring us through this because he's saying now, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart's condemnation. And I'm going to tell you, when our hearts condemn us, we can do one of three things. The first I'm not even going to talk about because you're not a Christian if you can just dismiss it. But the other two things, the first is, I I think this is the greatest instinct of our heart. It's to run to religion. Because what religion then does is it shines the spotlight on me. And it screams at me, Rod, you need to do more. You need to be more. And what religion does is it puts me in performance mode. Where it's all about me. Either what I have done or what I haven't done. Where I love for the simple purpose of proving to myself that I'm a lovable person. Where I do good to others to prove to me that I'm good. And you get on this treadmill of proving and proving. It goes faster and faster until we break. I'll be honest. I don't find 1 John to be all that comforting. All these assurances aren't assurances to me. I know I don't walk as Jesus walked. I don't love as Jesus loved. I don't relate to the world in the way Jesus related to the world. I love things I shouldn't love and don't love things that I should. I think that's why John strategically puts these verses right here. Because this book can start to condemn us more than encourage us. And he knows that. And he knows that there is one truth that trumps all these verses that condemn us. And it's this. That God is greater than our condemning hearts. 
And I can either run to religion where it becomes all about me and my goodness and trying harder, which in the end either leaves me as this pretentious, self-righteous Christian, a beaten down, defeated one, or I can run to the gospel. And the gospel says, Rod, this is not about you. It's not about how good you are. This is about God. It's about how good he is. He is greater than our condemning hearts. And if you want gospel, go to the first verse of this chapter. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. How great is the love of the Father. It's like this burst of emotion coming from John. This love that he has lavished on us that we should actually be called son, daughter. And then he has to put the exclamation point. That is what we are. God is more than our king. He's more than creator. He's more than savior. He is a father. He's your dad. The dad you always wanted and a thousand times more. And he made you to know him as father so he can lavish his love on you. In fact, I like the King James Version here because it begins with this whole world word, behold. Behold it. And behold isn't this flippant knowing. Behold is something you do when you see the most amazing piece of art or a magnificent sunset. You stop. You behold it. You drink it in. And I think this verse might be one of the most amazing truths in the whole world, that God is, is our Father, that we are his children. We need to behold this. We need to drink this into the fiber of our being because this is what we are. This is who I am at the core of my being. This is who you are. And the Bible wants to constantly not just tell us what to do. It wants to first bring us back to who we are so that what we do flows out of that. Just think about what God did to get us in his family. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He was born in a feeding trough to poor parents. He lived his life homeless. And when he died, the only possession he had was a garment tied around his waist that the soldiers rolled dice for. He held nothing back. He gave it all for us, for you. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. And see, when this comes into our hearts, it doesn't free us from this call to walk as Jesus walked or to love as Jesus loved, but it frees us from all condemnation in doing that. And it frees us from from the world and its hold on us because there's nothing greater in all the world than the love that the Father has lavished on us. It frees us then to, as we're filled with this love, to love the world not out of a state of emptiness, but a state of being full, to love as Jesus loved the world. Behold, 
what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called his children. That is what we are. Behold it. Let's pray. And even charity this morning has that hope that you, Heavenly Father, will be a father to her daughters. And every single one of us in this room, not one of us have had a perfect dad. But we have the perfect dad in you. And as, I, as a dad, what I know is that when my kids go AWOL and they get rebellious, I don't love them less, I love them more. I'm not checked out, but I'm just checked in that much more. And God, how much more with you? You love us with an everlasting love. God, let that change us so that we can be participants with you in changing and redeeming your world for the glory of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Okay. We're done. <laughs> we had it planned to not sing today. Um, but to let this just settle in our hearts. I feel like we've had three weeks now. I feel like John really stirs the pot. Before um, I call elders and pastors up to pray with people, um, Anybody have any questions? About anything? Are we excited about this? Yeah. Scared? Yeah. Do we want to do something? Do we? <laughs> If you need prayer this morning, um, there will be pastors and elders uh, who would love to pray with you. Let's uh, stand, receive God's blessing. God, thank you so much for being all that you are. And that we can know today who you are. We can know your heart because of your word, your revelation to us. That someone like Charity can, in the subjectivity of her experience, still be grounded in the hope and the anchor of who you are, which is rooted in your words. God, may we continue to just take it in, drink it in, so we can live it out, walk it out. Help us to walk as Jesus walked. Help us to love as Jesus loved. I pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great week. I will bring a sacrifice.
Sustain me, you draw me near and embrace me. You're before me, before and behind me. Behind you invite me in. 